Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. Today we have something a little different for you. For those of you who were with us last week, we had two great interviews on uh, on the show that day, which is, again, something that we don't normally do. We normally just have one interview come your way. Uh, we also normally have some uh, commentary afterwards, but because my great co-host, Karen Hutchinson, is still out uh, for the summer, um, next week we're going to get her back. So I'm very excited for that. I hope you are too. And uh, we, have, we have a great interview coming your way next week as well. But today... We have for you a continuation of last week. Uh, Brian Fisher and Kira Schlesinger uh, talked with us last week. They they uh, they shared with me in separate interviews, um, really their their thoughts, their position on abortion. Uh, you heard that last week. This week we have a great uh, thing for you too. We have them together in a conversation um, on this on this difficult issue of abortion. As we learned last week, as we know, I and mean, we don't need to listen to an interview to know that this is a very emotional topic for a lot of people. This emotional conversation. This has a lot of um, you know history in a lot of people. So you know today I wanted these two to get together and really model for us what it looks like to have a civil dialogue on this topic, which I hope we can do more and more of. Uh, you know, so I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on this episode, on last week's episode, but also on everything that we're doing on the show, how we can do it better. Uh, any questions you have that I didn't ask, any, any things about this that you want to add to the conversation. And really, I'm going to emphasize the civil conversation, the civil dialogue, the healthy conversation that we really can have. So, you know, you can do that at thinkorphan.com. You can do that on our Facebook page, on Twitter, um, or just send me, you know, send me an email, info at thinkorphan.com, and we can get this great feedback and keep this conversation going. So without more from me, we're going to get to this conversation between Brian Fisher, who's the president of Human Coalition, and Kira Schlesinger, who is an author and an Episcopalian priest. So here it goes. Well, hello to Brian Fisher and Kira Schlesinger. I know we've had both of you on the show recently uh, with separate interviews, and I'm very excited for today because we have both of you on uh, to have a conversation together about this, uh, this difficult issue of abortion that we are, we are facing in our country and in our world today. Uh, so, Brian and Kira, hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. And so today, you know, I, I want to have a good conversation with you about some some of the tough um, things that we're facing, some of the things that you both have written in your books, uh, and just some of the issues and some of the the different uh, things that the abortion conversation does bring up and hear from both of you on that and how we can uh, potentially work together on, on some of this and on the things that we disagree on. How can we move forward in the midst of those disagreements? And so, but before we get into that, I want to just have uh, both of you and start with you, um, uh, Brian. Um, just how can we have these conversations in, you know, in typical everyday life? Uh, not mo- most people don't get the chance of having someone curate a conversation like we're doing here. Most people aren't going to be on a podcast talking about this, but these are issues that really aren't talked about a lot in society. They're just kind of brushed aside and, and not addressed a lot of the times. But I think we do need to uh, engage them more in healthy ways to have civil dialogue on these issues. And how, how, do you, how have you been able to do that? And how do you how can you encourage our audience to be able to do that? Well, I think what you're doing is a great step. I appreciate you offering to have the conversation. I deeply appreciate Kira coming on and being a part of the dialogue. I think uh, understanding that our language should be laced with grace and truth and um, come to the table with our disagreements with with facts and candor, but at the same time understanding that you know we are all sinners saved by grace and we should be graceful in how we approach these I think we understand the emotion on both sides and, and there's no question it's a very emotional topic, which is why it isn't talked about enough. However, it's a very important topic and I think it's worth the discussion. So modeling it, um, showing that civil discourse can occur even on a contentious issue is very important. And so forums like this 
whether they're on a podcast or on a radio show or, you know, frankly, just sitting around the water cooler are, I think, very healthy conversations. How about you, Kara? Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely. This is part of hopefully modeling these kinds of conversations uh, that we can be able to have without them devolving into to yelling and tears and um just sort of further entrenchment on on both sides. Uh, I think there is a role for for what I would call deep listening, um, not only listening to kind of whatever position we're trying to argue or justify, but really listening below the surface for for the kinds of values and um, positions that are our, our positions and our thoughts and our morals and our ethics and our values, like they arise out of these deeper truths that we hold. And so listening to those deeper truths. And I think that's usually where people find more common ground rather than kind of the, maybe the more detail oriented conversation. So trying to see the forest for the trees. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that too, when I've, when I've had these conversations, they're obviously so much better and deeper and richer when you do have a relationship with the people, when you have earned the conversation. Um, but typically when it's a, it's a, whether it's a newer friendship or whether it's something that you're just coming into, one of the things that I've found works and actually one of my good friends who does mediation, uh, in the middle East, which, you know, you talk about contentious issues. There's a lot of them over there. He always talks about, uh, starting with something that you agree on as well. And I think that that helps to humanize the other side. It helps to, um, make sure that, you know, you're realizing that you're, you know, you're both human beings that have hopes, dreams, fears, all the same, um, you know, moving forward. And so, I did want to start like that today. I wanted to start with something that I think is, you know, much uh, less contentious, let's say, and it's something that I think that both of you do agree on, at least to a to a large degree. And that's really the idea that, and the the issue that I see that there is a there is a stigma and a judgment that women too often receive in our in our churches and uh, society in general for being pregnant, uh, you know, an unwed mother, unwed pregnancies, uh, being a single mother uh, and or giving up their children for adoption. So I want to, you know, start with Kira here and, and you just talk. We t- I know both of you addressed this a little bit in your, in your interviews that, that I've had with both of you individually, but I wanted to hear you both talk about this uh, in a dialogue as well. Just how does this stigma, how does that uh, judgment uh, contribute to the rise of abortions in our, in our country and, and I imagine around the world as well? And how can we collectively fight against uh, the judgment and stigma? Sure. So before I, I launch into answering your question, I also want to lift up that Brian and I both share a musical background. So, wow. so even outside of the, the boundaries of this particular conversation and what we, what we may or may not agree on, um, we do share that as well. So that's one place to start in terms of, like you said, the, our hopes and dreams and who we are as people. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think unfortunately, uh, there is a lot of shame that our culture and society and, and our churches are a lot of times not any better at that than the rest of society at, um, judging women who might become pregnant, might have an unexpected or an unwanted pregnancy outside of, of the confines of a relationship or might be just suffering relationship difficulties. And, um, I mean, having to face down that shame can really contribute to how somebody might approach a choice of whether to continue on with a pregnancy or to, to terminate it. And so, I mean, again, I think that as, as churches, as communities of faith, um, to, to support, to our first reaction should be support and not shame. Um, and really trying to, to come around, uh, a woman to, to support her in, in that, uh, in that space, in that time. And I think part of it is tied to this idea that, um, in our kind of like current situation, our current culture, that this idea that childbearing and child rearing is, is not an economic contribution. Like, shouldn't you be doing something, um, how is this going to affect your ability to to hold a job or to um, pursue your education? Um, and so we have these kind of systems that surround us that uh, really kind of deter 
women and and families from from carrying these pregnancies to completion and uh, that shame that comes from society and from the church certainly certainly does not help the matter yeah i think the positive news is i think that's lessening some at least in my observation the the organization i serve human coalition has served i don't know 10, 20, 30,000 women in its history of varying degrees of economic situation and religious background and whatnot. And, you know, we do hear unfortunate stories of them being shamed at church, but more and more churches are becoming to, they're understanding that although the, the pregnancy might have occurred through a sinful act, the child is not sin. The, the child is a, this, you know, country song, a baby changes everything, but the child is a blessing. And that um, we should not punish the woman or the child for whatever the circumstances were related to conception. And so there's a wonderful ministry based here in Dallas that we're friends with called Embrace Grace. And Embrace Grace um, brings pregnant women who most of the time are unwed or, or might have the sense that that shame and judgment would come upon them. They bring them into the church and, you know, the women of the church love on them and they throw them baby showers and they walk them through Bible studies and, and we'll walk long term with them even after the, after the baby has been born, showing them that the love of Christ is, um, is, is powerful and compassionate. So we need more of that, but those types of ministries embrace grace is growing all over the country. And in fact, now is reaching at, at places around the world. And I think Christians by and large are, are sort of moving down that continuum of saying, you know, the circumstances might have been sinful, but the baby, the baby is not. So let's care for mom and baby and do so in a way that is compassionate and graceful. So, Kira, do you have any uh, any further thoughts on that before we move on? Um. I did, but I lost it. So let's keep moving on. <laughs> All right, not a problem. Not a problem. Well, it'll probably come back at some point. You can, we can we can get back to it then. Um, it'll it'll likely come up in in the context of some of the other conversations we have today. Um, but the uh, the next one I want to I want to have um, Kira. You start out uh, by by responding to this quote and just kind of explaining it a bit more, put some more context to it, because obviously I can't read the whole book to the audience right now, so I'm going to pull a quote out of it, which is always a bit dangerous, and I don't not, I don't do it unless I have the author to be able to put it into context. So that's what we have here. Um, but in, in your book, and I, I know some of it is a quote of a quote, but uh, the quote here is, it is quite consistent to hold a profound conviction that it is intrinsically wrong deliberately to end a human life and yet believe that a decision whether to end human life in early pregnancy must nevertheless be left to the pregnant woman whose conscience is most directly connected to the choice and who has the greatest stake in it. We can still hold that abortion is a tragedy, a loss, even a death of sorts, and do everything in our power to work toward a world in which women are less inclined to make that choice. So can you just explain that a bit more, and then, and then Brian, if you can just respond to... to uh, to Kira's thoughts? Sure. So one of the problems I think we face in talking about abortion is a problem of terminology and how kind of siloed uh, those those terms have become. So this kind of dichotomy between like pro-life and pro-choice and what we mean by those um, can be really kind of run the gamut. And so Throughout my through conversations with other people, you know, I would hear people say, "Well, I um, I I'm pro-life," and when I would ask kind of what they meant by that, um, it would they would identify as pro-life, but then in in a way that was like, "Well, that is this is not a choice that I would make for myself," and but then they'd also be able to kind of imagine and sympathize with situations that might be very different from their own. And so part of this is born out of my own work as a pastor and as a hospital chaplain, um, this gap between what we might believe and the kind of theological and ethical and moral commitments that we have 
but as they kind of run up against the messiness of our actual lived experience, this this gap between our ideals and the kind of current world we find ourselves in, or sort of theologically what we might call the like the already but not yet, the sort of partially realized kingdom of God. And also, um, kind of through my own research on the book and before writing the book, uh, it led me to the the clergy consultation service on abortion, which was a pre-Roe v. Wade um, group of clergy from my own tradition as an Episcopalian, uh, rabbis, other Protestant ministers who helped women seek safe abortions before Roe v. Wade. And so they saw that this was that abortion was what some women were going to do and and tried to mitigate the damage um, in terms of, you know, preventing women from being taken advantage of by uh immoral, you know, providers who sought to, um, to, you know, who were either unsafe and, um, or, you know, would take advantage of women in a very delicate situation. And also, I mean, the physical, potential physical damage from an unsafe abortion, pre-Roe v. Wade, infertility, sepsis, um, other things that, that might land women in an even worse situation down the road. So that they're, that these are messy issues, that these are complicated issues, that, that lives are complicated and, um, you know, what we might hold theologically, morally, and ethically, and how that runs up against kind of the, the messiness of actual lived experience. Well, I think certainly we would agree that there's confusion on labels and what the definition of an abortion advocate versus a pro-life person might be. Those things, you know, have never been as clear as they could be. And there are variants, I think, in in both camps for sure. Um, I think this probably strikes at the, the root of the challenge between those that favor abortion rights and those that don't. And that is what what is the preborn? What what is in the womb? So the pro-life perspective says human life starts at conception fertilization, that at the moment that the egg and the sperm fuse, we have a unique, genetically unique individual, a human being, and that human being continues just to grow in development and maturity throughout time. And so that human being has the same value at any stage of, of life. Therefore, if we were to agree that the intentional killing of innocent life is morally wrong, then the intentional killing of a preborn baby is morally wrong. And it's not that the pro-life movement um, values the child more than the mother, it's that they see them as, as equal. Because the abortion community primarily says the woman's life or you know, in many cases, she's being coerced. But whoever the decision maker is related to the preborn child, they have more value than the preborn child. Pro-life perspective says, well, scientifically and ethically, that's not true. We, we should not be devaluing human life at any stage. Uh, we should instead be seeking to protect that life. So a, a genuine pro-life perspective says the baby in the womb has the same value as a person outside the womb. And therefore let's work to protect and preserve both and do so in a way that is uh, compassionate and graceful, but still protects both lives because they both have value. Akira, how do you, how would you respond to that? So Science has really made these conversations kind of even more complicated and messy. Um, recently, there was an article about an IVF clinic that lost 4,000 fertilized eggs. Uh, the, the refrigeration mechanism failed. And, you know, so then the question becomes, did 4,000 people die? And if so, then how, like, why aren't we outraged and... Um, you know, horrified by this. Yeah, well, I, I would say yes, and we should be. And, and when we read the article, we we certainly uh, were. I think science is actually irrefutable in this case because, you know, 1942, the Carnegie stages of human development came out, which sort of codified 
all the stages of human development from conception all the way through through mature death and acknowledge stage 1a is that fusion of the egg and sperm at the earliest is a point of life so i don't i've not read anything that suggests that um human life somehow springs into existence at any other stage other than carnegie stage 1a and the embryologists and whatnot that we have networked with have said that's that's been irrefutable scientific fact for a long time do we emotionally respond the same way to 4,000 zygotes or embryos being destroyed as we do with 4,000 people perishing in a terrorist attack? Well, no, um, that's certainly the case, but we also don't respond emotionally the same if we lose a child versus a neighbor that loses a child. It's not the emotional response that determines value. It's the fact that we're human. And because we are human at different stages of development, that's where we receive our intrinsic value. Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely a part of the conversation where we are going to disagree. Um, And I certainly think that any stage of life should be supported and valued, but, um, you know, definitely disagree on whether from the moment of conception that entity is is a human with the same um, same status as, say, a three-year-old or a six-year-old or a 21-year-old. Right. No, and I understand that is that is the position of abortion advocates. Our, our question is always, well, on what basis then do we value human life? So unfortunately, throughout human history, we have been incredibly adept at devaluing groups of human beings for all sorts of reasons, right? Race, color, gender, creed, size of nose. I mean, unfortunately, people in power have continually found ways to discriminate against other people groups because of, you know, whatever reasons there might be. So when it comes to uh, human beings in the womb, because science clearly shows that life begins at conception, we are members of the human race at conception. Well, then the question is then why do we devalue lives in the womb using some arbitrary criteria, why, why do we want to discriminate against the youngest and most vulnerable among us instead working for the benefit of them and those that are more mature or highly developed? I, I think those are the questions that pro-lifers you know, ask honestly of abortion advocates because that's where we're saying we, it doesn't make sense if, if we're all created in the image of God, if we recognize that Human beings are unique in the created order. If science says life begins at conception, why do we make valuation distinctions along the way? Um, what, on what basis do we do that, and why is that morally justifiable? I think that's at the heart of uh, the crux of the matter. Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right about it being at the at the crux of the matter, and um, kind of through the research that I did on my book, um, even very early Christian thought, you know, did not, uh, posited that sort of ensoulment that, you know, a new person received a soul really kind of around that like 20 week mark. Um, and, you know, leading up to, uh, this kind of idea of that the child in the womb kind of became a, a person rather, I mean, I want to make a distinction kind of between a life and a person because lots of things, um, lots of things are alive and, you know, you look at DNA, okay, well it has DNA, um, that makes it a human, but in terms of the personhood that's granted to, um, you know, all of us, whatever that, whatever makes a person that, there's a long tradition and history behind kind of that happening sort of around that 20 week mark. Yeah. Of course, and this again, is pre I, pre ultrasounds and pre DNA and you know, all of these kinds of things. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, and again, I'm, I, I get, um, much less rational emails from people than this discussion is related to this topic. And so I genuinely appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of it and the gracefulness of it. A pro-lifer would reject personhood as some sort of valuation technique. That even that term, I mean, the Dred Scott case in terms of slavery sort of relegated African Americans to lesser degrees of personhood. 
we are valuable because we're human and any other filter that is applied, whether it's personhood or race or color or gender are, um, morally inconsistent with that. When the soul enters the body, that is a, a I think an unanswerable theological question, which is, <laughs> is certainly fascinating, but at the same time, I, I don't think we know. And would that, would that, or would that not determine value? The, the point is from a pro-life perspective, we would say, we are divine works of art. Each of us is beautifully and wonderfully created. We are marvelously unique and gifted and skilled. And we become that human being at conception. And from then, left untouched, we just simply develop into more and more mature versions of ourselves. So our value is not in our, our personhood, which is admittedly a somewhat ambiguous category. Our value is in the essence of what we are, which is human beings. That's the that's the traditional pro-life perspective. Well, let, let me uh, let me just kind of jump in here a little bit and and go to something that I, I talk with both of you about during your respective interviews, and I want to bring it up again to kind of put some context, some actual um, real life issue in front of you, and, and see if you can uh, you know discuss it for a little bit. The idea of the uh, Unborn Victims of Violence Act of 2004, you know, to this issue, that act recognizes, recognizes a child in utero as a legal victim if they are injured or killed during the commission of any of over 60 listed federal crimes of violence. In that act, it defines child in utero as, quote, a member of the species Homo sapiens at any stage of development who is carried in the womb. But it has a specific exemption for abortion. So with this... Um, you know, the question really I want you guys to, you know, to talk about is, is how is that, how is that, uh, consistent with your position? How is it inconsistent with your position? Um, and really how are these, uh, how is, why would there be a specific exemption for abortion if in fact these are, um, defined as children in utero in that act? Why don't we start with Brian? Oh, sure. Well, certainly the protection of preborn life and the mom would be um, very much in line with the pro-life position. Uh, we don't want any act of violence to affect the, the child or the mother. And in fact, you know, most societies would argue those are some of the most vulnerable populations. And so we should be extending protections. Um, the abortion exclusion was included for political reasons um, purely. So it's an interesting law because at one point we have Roe v. Wade on the books, which in essence, made abortion legal in all 50 states, striking down various restrictions. And then we have Lacey and Connor's law, which says, well, but we're going to protect that same child through over 60 acts of violence except for abortion. So, again, it gets back to this question of evaluation. John Kerry, of all people, said, look, I can't sign this law because it doesn't make philosophical sense. Like, how can we on one hand say that a 10-week-old child should be protected from 60 act of violence, but on the, on the other hand, say that it's okay to abort the child, which points out the irony of having two contradictory laws on the, on the books. So I think I appreciate, I think it was George Bush who put the law in place and, and certainly affirmed protecting a child and their mother at any given stage. Um, it did highlight the, the irony that Preborn children are the only people group who get valued based on whether or not they're wanted. And if they're wanted, then we throw baby showers and we have legal protections and we name them at an early age and we we, we spend a, an enormous amount of time caring for the baby in utero and making sure everything's great. If the child at some point is not wanted, they're free to be free to be killed. I, I think the law sort of points out a tremendous irony of morality. Yeah, I mean, like I kind of said in, in our previous conversation, I'm certainly not a legal scholar, um, but the kind of contradiction between these laws definitely points to to the difficulties and the contradictions involved in, in talking about these issues and how we think about these issues, um, you know, that, that it is complicated and that there is, um, there are inconsistencies. And one way, I mean, that issue of valuation is is a big one. Um, and if you define ethics as kind of the study of competing goods and thinking about abortion as an ethical issue, it really involves that competing good of of a woman's personhood versus 
the nurturing of, of a baby, of a fetus. And so these laws kind of strike at that heart of like, okay, well, what is, what is the competing good here? Is it a woman making a choice about her own body or is it somebody acting kind of from the outside? Are you looking for another response? If you have, if you have one, I was going to come back to you. I was, I was going to let the silence hang there in case you could come back with it. But, but yeah, if you have one, then we'll move on. Then I'll have another. Oh question well, no, that, I, but. um, I would just, I, I think our both of our hearts are in the same places. Let's let's care for women and let's make sure that um, they are elevated and honored in society. Which I, again, early feminists. You go back to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, Alice Paul. They considered abortion to be the ultimate exploitation of women. That's that's Alice Paul's quote. They saw abortion as men using and abusing women and having a get-out-of-jail-free card for their, their sexuality. And so when we look at contradictory laws such as that, Roe v. Wade comes along and says, you know, we're going to apply personhood as a valuation factor – and the Supreme Court basically said, we actually don't know if the preborn child is a human being or not. They didn't even ask an embryologist. They sort of punted on the question, and they, they created this law creating legalized abortion. And then yet 40 years later, we have a law which says, well, we need to protect lives in the womb. So it, the the irony, at least to me, is that we have, you know, Scott Peterson was charged for a double murder because both Lacey and Connor were killed when he when he killed her and threw her in the San Francisco Bay. Um, and yet she could have walked into a Planned Parenthood and killed her child for any reason. So the, the, there's just no logic to it. It's not that it's complicated. It's that it's just it's just morally contradictory. And, and that's where, without question, we need to spend some time in sober thought trying to figure out what is true what is accurate, what is factual, and what is is conjecture, or in the case of the abortion exception, just politically expedient. So, Brian, I want, I want to ask you kind of a, an issue on one of the really uh, – actually, this is something a lot of pro-life people would, would say. You hear a lot of, of – uh, you know, people who profess to be pro-life that, that talk about, but there needs to be an exception for rape or incest or something that threatens the health of the mother. What would you uh, say to that? Most folks who are pro-life would say if the life of the mother is legitimately threatened, if she is, she is going to die because of the pregnancy, which is a terribly tragic and, you know, on the surface impossible looking situation, that it is morally right to save one life instead of losing them both. And that's what I would personally subscribe to. Um, again, it is a tragic situation. It is a heartbreaking situation and no one ever wants to go through it. And that again is where I think the body of Christ can play a, a pivotal role. Um, there's lots of questions that we can't answer this side of heaven and why that situation happens would be one of them. The cases of rape and incest, um, in the abortion debate are, are typically, you know, candidly red herrings. So when I get that question, and I get it a fair amount, my return question is, well, look, if, if, we, if the pro-life community were to give you the rape and incest exception, which is less than 1% of all abortions, would you give us the other 99? Meaning, could we save the child in the cases of economic distress, perceived or real, for relationship issues, for those types of things? And 100% of the time, the abortion advocate will will say no. So the rape and incest question, if, if taken literally, goes back to the same issue, which is what is the value of the child? Should we kill the child based on the circumstances of, con of uh, conception? Um, I personally think somebody who commits rape and incest, castration seems like the perfect punishment <laughs> for me. I find them to be <laughs> times. I think you have to be the lowest of humanity to commit those crimes. Um, and unfortunately, we see those victims in our clinics with some regularity. And, and we know the heartbreak and the pain and the lack of fairness. And it is horribly, terribly unfair. And I, I think we should have uh, unit clinics for men who are rapists. That's my opinion. Um, at the same time, uh, 
killing a human being doesn't solve the pain and the suffering that comes along with those um, with those crimes. Uh, there, no one is claiming that it's fair, but what is morally right is again to protect mother and baby and to allow them both to flourish instead of of, of committing one moral evil to try to solve another moral evil. And you know we have we have friends and co laborers who who were conceived in rape and. You know, frankly, they're sort of offended by the question because they're like, well, wait a minute. Should I not have been born because some joker, you know, violently assaulted my mother? You know, they're happy to be here and and they want to be a part of the human existence as well. And I, you know, it's an interesting perspective. But I, I think this question in the media is used to sort of paint pro-lifers as being mean and only caring about the child. And I, that's not it at all. I think extraordinarily strong punishment for the rapist or the, the person who inflicts the incest while we extend extraordinary grace and compassion to both mom and child, understanding that even in rape and incest, God has a way of making something beautiful out of ashes. And there are thousands of testimonies of wonderful people today who were conceived in those circumstances and all the family members go on to have, you know, wonderfully productive lives. Kira? Yeah, so my issue with sort of the the rape and incest red herring might be a good good term for it um, is is that kind of relationship to the um, the situation of conception. So if we say, okay, well, it's okay in the situations of rape and incest, but the other one, you know, the other ninety nine percent, like. It's not okay because it, if you follow that line of thought, it really kind of views pregnancy as a punishment for engaging in sex. And so if it's rape or incest, well, then it's okay. You didn't, you know, you, sh- you don't deserve to be quote unquote punished with this pregnancy. Um, and I think that's a really unhelpful lens through which to view the possibility of bringing new life into the world. Yeah, well, yeah. we certainly agree that pregnancy um, is beautiful. It's majestic, and you know, I have two kids; they're older now, so I don't, you know, I lose brain cells with every passing day. But my memory of my wife being pregnant and of birth and and rearing my kids when they were young is a is a beautiful testament to God's creativity. And um, I I would agree that we should be celebrating pregnant appropriately, compassionately, even when the circumstances are, for whatever reason, less than ideal and in, in cases of those extremely unfortunate crimes violent um but i i have learned because we have worked with thousands and thousands of women who come from very difficult situations that women are incredibly strong they are remarkably resilient they face unbelievable challenges with grace and with their hand held high and the, the vast majority of women who at some point were considering abortion and then go on to choose life they frankly become rock star moms and and phenomenal examples to other women. And I, I think we we shortchange women when we um, when we deny them uh, the opportunity to be to be moms. And um, you know, it's, it's been fun for me personally to watch. It's been educational for sure. But I'm inspired by the moms that we work with every day um, here at the organization. Well, the the other side of this is the. The uh, one of the things the Human Coalition is doing right now is the abstinence training educational programs. Um, Brian, can you discuss, you know, just real, you know, briefly describe the programs, uh, and then Kira, I want you to respond to that because I think one of the things that people often ask is, you know, why are we, you know, not teaching more about abstaining and abstinence? And people, you know, the, the natural consequences of, of sex obviously is pregnancy a lot of, you know, some of the time, not necessarily a lot of the time. But, you know, what, you know, what, what are your, both of your positions on the need for and having more abstinence training? Well, the bulk of Human Coalition's work is working with pregnant women who are high at risk to abort. That's where we spend the overwhelming majority of our time. However, we fully and completely agree that the problem of unplanned pregnancy is upstream. You know, we, we are a rescue system for babies and their moms, but there are plenty of phases to that process before we ever get involved. And so in Pennsylvania, we train eight to 10,000 
public school kids a year on what's called sexual risk avoidance now because abstinence is such a slighted term. But in essence, how do we live lives, sexually healthy lives? How do we avoid an unplanned pregnancy? How do we avoid STDs? How do we avoid you know, complicated relationship situations? How do we practice a healthy sexual lifestyle? And it is a, it is a pivotal part of the process. If 85% of abortions are occurring, you know, with women who are single, they're, they're unmarried, then obviously we have a, a crisis here of, uh, of sexuality. And so the biblical model, although, you know, derided and, and by some considered very traditional, the sexual union between a man and a woman inside the confines of marriage still is the healthiest perspective for certainly the child, but also just um, general overall health. We're all aware of the extraordinary explosion in STDs and whatnot in our country. So if we approach that discussion of sexual health, sexual purity, if you will, from a, from a health perspective, from a social perspective, you know, kids are really into it. Um, they are very curious about their bodies. They're very curious about how sex works and, and what the risks are and what they aren't. Um, you know, I would argue and have argued publicly for years that this is primarily a role for the church, but the church stubbornly remains somewhat silent on it, even those that agree to the to um, a biblical sexual ethic. I'm not sure why. I think there's lots of different reasons. But at the same time, if we can educate our children about how their bodies work, what sex really is, how procreation happens, and how to keep themselves healthy, um, overall, you know, we would support that. We certainly see the outcome of that not occurring, you know, several hundred times a month, and, and we see the pain that comes from that. Yeah, I'm definitely on board with um, more education, and particularly the church's involvement in in sexual education. Um, unfortunately, too often, you know, people, children, young adults, teenagers rely on sort of what they can find on the internet or what their friends are saying, um, rather than kind of more deliberate um, education. At the same time, people are going to have sex and people have been having sex for a long, long time, having sex outside of marriage. And humans are remarkably resilient and they're remarkably creative and have used all kinds of, of methods to try to, to prevent the consequences of, of sex, whether that's pregnancy or STIs, um, those kinds of things. So I think certainly we can aim uh, towards a particular sexual ethic, but we also need to to be aware of of the realities and and that you know as marriage gets pushed later and later, and it also isn't a cure all. I mean, I myself have been through a divorce, and um, you know that was a horrible situation that I never kind of planned on being in, um, but it certainly is a reality for a lot of couples and and women. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's that's important to to talk about here is you know, and I, I think that that's we can we can agree that the ideal in this situation obviously is to not have sex if you don't want the baby, right? But as you said, uh, Kira, there are, there are going to be people that that have sex regardless of that, and that will get pregnant that they're not planning on it, um, and even there are you know, unfortunately, many married people who do have sex in the confines of marriage and they don't want to keep the baby either and there have been, there are many abortions unfortunately in those situations as well which brings us to the you know the reality that we're in that that if there were no abortions there would be a lot of children who on the on the at the after the baby is born the parents would not want that child which would you know result in a lot more orphaned and vulnerable children in our world, which already that number is very large, as we know, and most, you know, virtually all the listeners on this show know that. So, you know, if I want, Brian, if you could kind of start with this one as well, the, the, how can we address that need on the, on the other side of it for, you know, we can obviously educate the parents on, on their role and hopefully have them or their biological, you know, relatives take the child in. But to the extent that's not covered, how are we going to uh, encourage and and address the massive need that we'll have? You know, once you know, if if abortion is 
is, uh, you know, if we can help lessen the amount of abortions, whether it's through laws or otherwise. Yeah, I read this question with a lot of interest. You know, Human Coalition works primarily in the United States. So I can't speak to internationally, but here in the U.S., I'm not sure the assumption is is correct that if abortion were all of a sudden outlawed, that we have this influx of babies that nobody wants. Our experience now working in 14 states suggests that even if a child at some point is unwanted for lots of different reasons, sometimes it's the mom's perspective. Oftentimes it's not. She's being coerced by some other party. If she chooses to go through with the pregnancy, by the time that baby's born, the whole family is excited and ready to go and and will support that child. We, we get asked about adoption all the time, as you might imagine. But about 99% of the clients that we see who choose life choose to parent. And they go on to have you know fantastic families and, and experiences. It's not to say they don't struggle. They, they do struggle. So I'm not sure if... We had 60 more people, 60 million more people in this country. If Roe v. Wade had never become legal, if you know, that would mean we'd have 60 million people living in slums. I think, in fact, I have found as I've traveled around the country, extraordinary desire for people to adopt and to foster, extraordinary desire to help those moms who are struggling, whether they're single or part of families, and an outpouring of love and compassion. Because you know, in America, we value life and we value we value children. I think the educational component is necessary. We have to we have to limit unplanned pregnancy. I think all parties agree. How that gets done is probably a subject of disagreement, but we we would love to have less unplanned pregnancies and figure out ways to get there. However, um, I have yet to meet a mom or a grandmom or a boyfriend who's sitting in the delivery room looks at their child that eight months earlier they were considering abortion and saying, gosh, that was a mistake. You know, they're crying and loving on the baby and excited about life and, and being helped by their community and, and ready to go. And again, internationally, that might be a different story, but here in the U S um, we still are a very compassionate country that welcomes children and want to help our neighbor. We want to be a help. We want to walk with them. We want to mentor them. We want to be with them. And we have now seen that beautifully in, you know, states all across the country. Yeah, I think, I mean, we're on the same page in terms of, of limiting uh, unplanned pregnancies. And I'd also kind of offer maybe a, a, a broader systemic view as our, our country and our world is kind of becoming more where wealth is becoming more and more concentrated in the hands of a few people. I think we have we have the the means, both economic and and otherwise, to care for um, these children. It's it may be a matter of of desire and of distribution as to whether we do that or not. Yeah, I think how that care is provided is a is a fascinating discussion, and I would ironically, probably part from my fiscal conservative friends on that topic. I, I think governments have an obligation to use government funding to protect their people. I think that state and federal government should be engaged in rescuing babies and families um, and being a support network. Now, I'm not a fan of you know complicated welfare systems, but I do think that if a government is responsible for the care and welfare of its people, it needs to have programs, legislation, and whatnot that that provide for that in conjunction with what I think is the most powerful institution, which is the local church. I think the local church knows how to care for its community a thousand times better than a state or federal government. However, I personally don't think it a bad use of tax dollars for those funds to um, assist. Not, I'm not arguing for redistribution of wealth. I'm, I'm arguing for proper use of funds to be able to um, provide a hand and some help for families who are struggling and getting them to move from dependence to independence. Human Coalition is a strange organization in that, you know, we we work to rescue the child, but then we also walk with the woman and her baby, sometimes for months, if not years afterwards, connecting her with local resources. Sometimes it's government care, sometimes it's private care, you know, job training, job placement. We want to help her move from dependence on something, whether it's the government or an abusive boyfriend, to independence and a stable family situation. 
And I, I would certainly be open to all sorts of models of how that actually gets how that gets done. Anything else on that, Kira? No, I'm awesome. <laughs> okay. Hey, I, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, a couple more questions, but the the the, the last um, last one I'm gonna before asking kind of what we can do together, uh, which will be the last question we finish with, up with. But I wanna I wanna just talk a little bit about a couple quotes you guys uh, had in your in your uh, respective books and I just they're they're similar um, and I just want to I think you guys are on the same page and I'd love to finish with something you just I probably should have just finished with you saying awesome after Brian said something <laughs> but we might not get better than that um, but I, I think here is something that you alluded to earlier Brian um, and I want to I want to flesh it out a little bit more and it's a, it's a really about the kind of the patriarchy that, that you you talk about in your book um, that you talked a lot about in your in your uh, the, inter- in, uh, the interview I did with you individually but uh, I want to talk about it a little bit with Kira as well because I know she talks about similar things in her book as well some of the issues we have uh, in our country today um, and we've had historically relating to abortion and so um, Kira I want you to kind of kick off the the, the, uh, the dialogue but the, the two quotes are and this is from Kira's book the first one is uh, how do you think a society absent of patriarchy society that took seriously women's bodies the realities of childbearing and the good of all people would promote a consistent ethic of life how can we all work t- towards such a society and then the uh, quote from Brian's book is, we won't end abortion in America until men individually choose to live their lives in a manner that rejects selfishness. Abortion exists because of male selfishness, and it won't continue to exist, and it will continue to exist as long as men continue to seek their own power, control, and pleasure. And so I just want the two of you to, to talk a little bit about um, what you meant by your respective quotes and how the other's quote relates to what you said. Sure. So um, one of my issues with the kind of approach, the language around kind of pro-choice and reproductive rights is this idea that women, women need abortion to be equal in society. And while that may be true in our current society, then I think that we need to take a long, hard look at why that is. Why is our society structured this way that women need to um, control when and how they get pregnant, even in inside of marriage? Um, you know, as I've seen friends of mine who are on a particular career path, my own career path, to to have to say, I cannot get pregnant at this time because it's it'll negatively impact my career. And part of that's because our system is set up for for men, um, for for the kind of freedom that men have. And uh, I think like Brian talked about in his interview and, and in this quote, um, it's it's still kind of a patriarchal system and our cultural value and our status, you know, are tied to things like uh, the kind of job we have and the kind of money we make. Um, and, and so the kind of a lot of the language around reproductive choice fits into that milieu. And it's it's where like Elizabeth Cady Stanton's coming from when she talks about, you know, being against abortion, that this allows women to function like men. But it, I think we need to ask ourselves, is that necessarily a good thing? And I would say no. Um, because for all of our growth and all of the ways that women have become more equal in society, we're still more likely to be the primary caretakers. We're still more likely to be um, to suffer the negative consequences financially and and in our careers when it comes to to bearing children. And so I would lift up uh, a kind of different framework that's come out of communities of color um, and women of color and indigenous women around language of reproductive justice and kind of seeking to change that narrative um, and seeking to change that system so that it isn't kind of, um, that it really takes into into consideration, um, yeah, the realities of childbearing and, and women's bodies. 
You know, what I've discussed in that quote in the book, uh, and I've been very public about this. I mean, I'm wildly unpopular in most circles and, and certain <laughs> groups of men is one of them because I have been the biggest critic of our gender. Um, if you look at the history of how abortion became legalized, uh, you, it is almost exclusively driven by men. Even Margaret Sanger, who is a central figure, was heavily influenced by her own admission by men toward this idea of eugenics and, and her racist tendencies. So you have this culture that claims that men and women are equal, and yet the abortion track in America has been almost exclusively driven by men. It was voted on by seven men. The history of abortion in the late 60s was almost exclusively driven by men. And um, I would still today agree with Alice Paul and that it's, it's the ultimate exploitation of, of women. I, I personally think the Me Too movement ties into this somehow. I'm not smart enough to figure all that out. But, you know, we, we consider ourselves as a quote-unquote just society as having found equality between the genders. And yet it seems like every day, every day, in some vertical, some woman is finally courageously coming forth and talking about, how she's been used and abused by men for their own gratification. So I sit here and say, how much, how much have we really progressed in terms of legitimately honoring both genders and treating them as equal value in the sight of God when we have seen a drastic increase in STDs, we've seen a drastic increase in sexual promiscuity, and it seems like every day some celebrity is getting charged for using and abusing some poor woman for his own own pleasure. I think we have a long way to go. And I do put the onus on that on men. I, I think we have failed to honor women biblically. I think we have failed to honor their role and their beauty. And I think we failed to, to honor God through that process. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I hate divorce. It breaks my heart that you've been through that. And I hear the pain in your voice and I see it all too often. And it just makes me want to, you know, scream because, you know, somewhere a man screwed up. And I, I think we as a gender need to do much better than that. Anything else, Kira? Uh, yeah, I also um, I do want to lift up this um the way in which our society is structured and way a lot of families are structured, that it also um it prevents men from caring for their children and for being involved um, and, and the beauty that comes from, from that. If it's sort of left up to uh, this is the woman's job and this is the man's job, um, that, you know, there are a lot of really gifted fathers that are not, um, you know, that, that feel like they have to spend more time at work rather than spend time involved in um, relationship with their, with their families. Yeah. And I think this really raises one of the issues we talk a lot about on this show. And I talk a lot about with people. And when I taught the class at, at uh, William Jessup and the idea of if we could disciple males to be godly men and women, you know, females to be godly women and to understand their identities and what they're created to do and who they're created to be and that they're amazing, unique children of God. So many of these things would be uh, taken care of. Now, that's a massive if, I understand. But it's something that discipleship, I think, is often um, is often in, uh, something that we don't do enough of uh, to actually model these things to people actually you know get into each other's lives and allow ourselves to be vulnerable you hear a lot about vulnerability today uh, you know in today's uh, conversations out there but I think to allow ourselves not only to be vulnerable but to accept um, people in our lives who will challenge us to be better who will challenge us to understand our roles and what we are created to do together um, as well as individually. Um, cause often we talk about the individual side of it, but the corporate side is often lacking as well. And so I think that the, that discipleship, and I think that's both what both of you are, are talking about there really it's to encourage people to understand who they are created to be and how that, how they are created to be in healthy 
right community, gospel-driven community, what does that look like? And that takes an understanding of scripture, but it also takes people in each other's lives. We're created for community to help each other be better. So with that, um, what can we do together? You know, and I just want to finish up with each of you kind of sharing a little bit about how you think that even if we disagree um, on some of these issues as we've talked about today, you know, there's, there's several things that, you know, there was ended with disagreement, but there's also at the end, you know, and at the beginning and throughout agreement that we say, okay, how can we work together on these things? And so I think in the midst of, you know, disagreement, and I think that there always will be on these issues, um, how can we work together and move forward together? And let's start with uh, Kira on this. Okay. Yeah. I, um, just trying to think back kind of through the conversation and the, and the places there where we did have agreement, um, kind of starting from the sort of upstream issue that the big piece of limiting unplanned pregnancies. And, and like Brian said, you know, we might disagree on how that might happen. Um, but I think we do agree that education of some sort is a big part of that. Um, and again, we did. We had agreement on on the the support support of women, um, support of women and their their relationships, their families, um, in this kind of if a woman has this kind of crisis moment with an unplanned pregnancy, and and however that happens, whether it's through a pregnancy clinic or a church or a you know meeting with a spiritual advisor, um, a clergy person like myself. Um, that these conversations, that a, a rash decision isn't made, that a woman feels surrounded and supported and has a place to kind of talk through whatever crisis um, she might be going through. And then, uh, I, again, kind of that, that follow-up piece of, okay, not just the baby is born and now everything, you know, we served our mission, but that walking, walking with that woman and her child and surrounding her with love and, and support both financial and spiritual and emotional, um, I think are all things that we can agree on to some extent. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would only add to that, that, um, it would be great if men would just stick around. I mean, we could work together to help men understand that, um, to use abuse a woman and throw her away is morally reprehensible and that a, a real man honors and respects women and commits, even if it's not convenient, even if it's not what he wants, um, sacrificing what we want um, for our wives, for our girlfriends, for women is a very godly appropriate thing to do. And the, the current male narcissism that has infected our community and in some degree our church, um, I, I would guess is an object, a subject that we could all agree on and try to find creative ways to work on. Well, I agree with that for sure. I also agree, uh, you know, and want to point out too, I think doing what we did today, just having conversations about this, people want to be understood too. And I think that's really important to remember as we're convers, you know, as we're talking with people is to not go in and just say, Hey, I want to tell you about the, what I believe about this, but to say, you know, what, what do you believe? I want to hear, hear, actually listen. Um, and to have that, uh, you know, empathetic listening that, uh, I know I'm working on. Um, and, uh, we can continually be learning how to do that better and better. So I want to thank both of you for doing that today. I want to thank both of you for your time, not just on this conversation, but also for the other interviews we were able to do. And I also just want to thank you guys for, for thinking deeply and for really seeking, um, you know, discernment from God on, on these really hard issues. And so thanks to both of you for this. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to having conversations with you, uh, in the future. Well, thanks to you both. This was an awesome, great, great time. And Phil, thanks for setting it up. And Kira, I really appreciate your heart and, um, you've been willing to come and talk about it. Thanks. Appreciate you both. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I want to say another big thank you to Brian and Kira for really having a great conversation with me, um, both in their interviews, individual interviews, and in this conversation that they just had. Uh, it really did model to me that, you know, we can have these conversations. It showed me what I already know, but I hope other people out around the world know and can start understanding 
which is we can have these conversations with each other. We can disagree vehemently on some issues and we can still be, be friends afterwards. We can still potentially even work together on things that are related to these issues. Um, as I talked about with Peter Greer a few weeks ago on collaboration on the book that he has rooting for rivals. Um, you know, there are ways that we can partner and work together with people who we disagree vehemently on certain things and certain issues. But as you learned, um, taught, you know, with Brian and Kira talking, they agree on a lot of things. They agree on, you know, the sanctity of life outside the womb, that we need to love these children. We need to love these pregnant women. We need to come alongside them and love them and help them to flourish, help them to know their identities, help them to know how they can love better. We need to help uh, disciple men, males to be men, to be godly men so that we don't have as many unplanned pregnancies, so that we have stronger marriages and stronger families. We have dads pouring into their daughters, pouring into their sons. We have moms doing the same and moms knowing their identities as well. And these are all things that we talk about on the show. These are all things that we need to do better together to make sure that we can move forward together. You know, and I, as I talked about with Kira, I disagree with her on a lot of things um, related to abortion. But there's a lot of things I agree with her on as well. And so, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't agree with everything that Brian thinks either. So, you know, and that's the beauty of this is we can get together and we can understand each other better. We can help each other to understand our position better. And, uh, you know, some people will agree with more than others, but all the people we can work together for the kingdom, uh, even if we disagree on things. And so I really, really appreciate this conversation. I really appreciate all of you out there engaging it with us. And, you know, I just, again, want to invite you to engage the conversation with me. Um, if you want to send me an email and because you don't want to do it online on more, uh, social media or on the, on the website, I understand that you can do that at info at thinkorphan.com. Um, so I just want to end this episode today, you know, knowing that Karen's going to be back next week, knowing that we've had, you know, several episodes, um, with different issues, different stories, uh, talking about how we can work together. I want to just encourage again, that you take all that you're learning on this show to work together with others, with these people that are on the show, with others in your community who may, who you may learn about are doing similar things to what we're talking about, similar things to what you are doing, that you can work with them. You can find ways to find the common ground and find the ways that you can work together. I really strongly encourage you to do that. So before we, we, uh, before I sign off here, I want to just, uh, add a recommendation for a book that I've recently read. Uh, again, it's the, uh, I've read this book several times over the years and I, I just want to make sure that I do put it out there, um, as a, as a recommendation that I think is for everyone, um, that calls himself a Christian and people that are really searching for truth. And, uh, that book is called don't waste your life. It's by John Piper. And, you know, it is a fantastic book about life as worship. And so I just want to put that out there as a recommendation for you all out there. And I, again, want to encourage you to take everything that you've learned on this show, everything that you're learning and the different reading they're doing and the different conversations you're having. I want you to take those things and I want you to really pray about how you can use them to help you love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.